qualified immunity for police and possible review by the Supreme Court. Jay Schweiker, policy analyst from the Cato Institute, joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Thank you for joining us today, Jay. How are you doing in D.C.? I'm doing all right, all things considered, which is the necessary qualifier you need these days. Yeah, yeah. You know, I uh, just heard that uh, the Cato Institute uh, received some damage from some of these recent riots. It did, unfortunately. Nothing, nothing too serious, uh, but it was a little bit shocking to see that on Twitter. Everyone's working from home, and so I think people are doing, doing fine. The leadership's been great about checking in with everyone and making sure people have what they need. Oh, I'm glad to hear that, Jay. So, Jay, thank you so much again for joining us. You know, our, our show today is about a lot of this recent uh, upheaval. And so, you know, the country, it's still reeling from these legal protests and also the illegal riots stemming from the killing of George Floyd during his arrest in Minneapolis. And that was on May 25th. And uh, of course, there's several police officers involved in that. And of them, uh, Derek Chauvin is now facing charges of second degree murder and second degree manslaughter. His fellow officers, and I may butcher these names a little bit, Jay Alexander Kung, Tom Thomas Lane and Tao Thao are facing uh, subsequent uh, charges for uh, aiding and abetting of those same charges. And so related to this, there's been a lot of people around the country speaking their minds and engaging in civil disobedience while others have looted, unfortunately, and committed acts of violence, engaged in vandalism and arson. And uh, during all of this, the debate around qualified immunity for public officials, which includes the police, has circulated in the media. And near that same time, as I read in some of my research, many cases were distributed for conference in front of the Supreme Court, which means they might be reviewed and potentially, Jay, qualified immunity could be facing some changes. But we won't know that for a little while. So, Jay, as a, a kind of a starting point for our audience here, uh, qualified immunity, can you briefly define what it is and then tell us about its history, how it's evolved over the years and where we stand today? Absolutely. So qualified immunity is a judicial doctrine that the Supreme Court invented in the 1960s, which shields public officials, including members of law enforcement, from liability from being sued for their misconduct even if a court has found that they broke the law. To really understand the history of qualified immunity, you have to understand our main federal civil rights statute, which we usually call Section 1983 after its place in the U.S. Code. This is a civil rights law that was passed in 1871 by the Reconstruction Congress, and it's pretty straightforward as statutes go. It simply says that any state actor, any public official, who violates someone's constitutional rights shall be liable to the party injured. Just basic, if your rights were violated, you get a remedy. This was meant to create a uniform cause of action for anyone who suffered unconstitutional treatment at the hands of public officials. Then in 1967, in a case called Pearson versus Ray, the Supreme Court basically grafted onto this statute a good faith defense and said, you know, even if these, uh, that particular case involved police making an arrest under an unconstitutional statute, and the court said, well, yes, they acted unconstitutionally, but they were acting in good faith, so they're not liable. But then the, the real case that established modern qualified immunity as we know it is a 1982 case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald, where what the Supreme Court said is, it doesn't matter if the, you know, your rights were violated, and it doesn't even matter if the defendants were acting in good faith. But to, before you can hold a public official liable for violating your rights, you have to show that they violated, quote, clearly established law, unquote. And that phrase, clearly established law, is really the key to modern qualified immunity. 
Because what it means is a civil rights plaintiff, before they can get relief for a violation of their rights, basically has to find a prior case already decided in their jurisdiction where someone else's rights were violated in basically the same way. In other words, it's quite common for courts to say to civil rights plaintiffs, yes, your rights were violated, but we can't find a case where someone's rights were violated in quite the same way, so you lose case dismissed. So that doctrine, as it functions, regularly excuses public officials, and including and especially police, from even egregious misconduct just because they are the first ones to have committed that sort of misconduct. Now, these type of cases we're talking about, these are civil cases, correct? That's right. These are civil cases brought by private individuals seeking money damages for violations of their constitutional rights. The doctrine does not apply in criminal cases. And just just a recap, so uh, qualified immunity, it's not just federal actors, it's state and local actors, public officials that receive this immunity. Is that also correct? That's right, yes. Section 1983, this underlying civil rights statute, actually only applies to state and local officials. That statute doesn't actually cover federal officials itself. Now, I understand there's a different avenue of law there. There's like, uh, K- so I know it's uh, wrapped up in 1983, but also Bivens v. 6, is that correct? That's correct. The, the Bivens doctrine allows individuals to bring similar claims against federal officials, but qualified immunity applies in both contexts, and it applies basically the same way. Okay, great, great. So let's walk through the modern operation of that two-part test that plaintiffs need to meet before they can overcome qualified immunity. So the way that the courts characterize this is is they they call it a two-part test, where step one is demonstrating that your rights were, in fact, violated. So in a certain way, I mean, we call that part of the qualified immunity test, but that's not really where qualified immunity is doing any work, because this is just the underlying merits question, were your rights violated? But then step two, which is really the key feature of qualified immunity, is if your rights were violated, was that violation of clearly established law? And that's, that's really the kicker, because the way that courts apply this in practice, they treat it as a very exacting standard that usually requires very precise factual specificity in prior case law that has to match all of the key facts in the present case. That step two, the clearly established law step, is really where qualified immunity as a doctrine is doing the work. And since some of this can come from the state level, I would imagine because courts react to things a little differently from state to state, laws are a little different from state to state, uh, these civil rights basically, uh, as they're enforced under qualified immunity, can be different from state to state. Is that a, is that a correct assessment? Well, certainly people's rights can be different from state to state in terms of state law. But what we're actually talking about under Section 1983 is violations of federally protected rights, which usually we mean constitutional rights. Those rights are supposed to be uniform everywhere. Everyone is supposed to be able to get redress for violations of their rights under the federal constitution, which applies against state officials. That was really the whole point of Section 1983. You know, especially was meant to protect the rights of recently freed slaves in the post-war South, because obviously the Southern states were, shall we say, not adequately protecting uh, the constitutional rights of the freedmen. So although states can have their own civil rights laws for state-specific rights, this was meant to provide a uniform cause of action for federal rights. But the way the doctrine works in practice means that we're not providing that uniform protection because whether you can get redress for your injuries doesn't really turn on our uniform federal standards for constitutional violations. 
it turns on the happenstance of which cases have been decided in your particular jurisdiction. When it comes to these qualified immunity cases, I know there's uh, quite a bit of clamor around the summary judgments and how they apply to these types of cases. And basically, that means that sometimes the plaintiff has to win twice before winning once. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Sure. And this is this kind of gets into some civil procedure questions, but it, it really is a key feature of qualified immunity. Usually, you know, after basic civil procedure rules, after the evidence comes in, parties will file motions for summary judgment where they're asking the courts, you know, basically, look, the facts are quite clear. There's no genuine factual dispute. The case doesn't need to go to trial. Normally, if a defendant loses a summary judgment motion, that means there are factual disputes and the case proceeds to trial. But with qualified immunity, one of the things that the, that the Supreme Court has essentially made up about the doctrine is that it is not just a defense to liability, but an immunity from suit, which means if a court denies a defendant's motion to dismiss a case on qualified immunity, that decision is subject to immediate appellate review before the case even goes to trial. So it deviates from this bedrock principle of civil procedure, which is that you can only appeal final judgments, i.e. normally once a case is decided at trial. So it means that even if a civil rights plaintiff convinces a trial court to deny qualified immunity, they don't get to go to trial yet. They have to go up on appeal and convince an appellate court that that decision was correct, which means not only another chance to lose substantively, but also usually at least a full year of delay and, of course, all the costs that go along with prolonged appellate litigation. So even if a plaintiff is going to win that appellate court, this can often exhaust the already limited funds that a lot of civil rights plaintiffs have and you know, sometimes force plaintiffs to drop cases or force them into unfavorable settlements, even though they have a perfectly meritorious claim. Fascinating. Jay, I know at the Cato Institute, uh, you all favor a lot of times sort of private sector solutions to public sector problems. And so in some of the articles I read on your website, uh, there was some discussion about liability insurance as being a possible solution to this. And so where do you weigh in on that? With regard to our proposal on liability insurance, we think that this is something that would go hand in hand with eliminating qualified immunity. One thing that a lot of people may not realize is that even if plaintiffs overcome qualified immunity and get a civil rights judgment against a police officer, those officers are almost always, and I'm like over 99% of the time, indemnified by their municipal employers, which means that, you know, the local governments or the police department covers the cost of the judgment, which means in essence that it's actually the taxpayers that are on the hook for that judgment, not the individual defendant who is held to have committed a constitutional violation. It's important to recognize that because it means that police are not always going to be personally on the hook for these judgments, but we don't actually think that's the best way of funding these judgments because then it kind of undermines the deterrent effects of this civil rights law because it means that the individual who actually committed misconduct may not be seeing the consequences of that personally. So our private sector solution, as, as you put it, is First, abolish qualified immunity so that these individuals will actually be held liable. But second, take the money that we are already spending to indemnify and cover these judgments and instead divert a portion of that to an insurance allowance for individual officers. So basically give them some of this money to maintain their own private professional insurance policy, the way that we have doctors and lawyers maintaining malpractice insurance. 
it's a little bit surprising that like police officers are one of the few professions where their 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 job can carry a significant risk to the public, but they're not required to carry insurance. So what in our view, what this would mean is that insurance companies are very good at assessing and pricing risk, which means that for that small minority of officers who routinely commit this kind of misconduct, their premiums would go up and up and eventually they would be uninsurable and therefore priced out of the market, which is exactly what we want to happen to the small portion of officers who commit the majority of these instances of misconduct. So in some ways, we think this is kind of an, an end run around some of the bureaucratic red tape that you see and how difficult it is to terminate even very problematic police officers or the fact that they often get rehired. Basically, let the market price their relative risk. And we think the problem largely takes care of itself. As we mentioned at the top of the show, there are a lot of cases related to qualified immunity that have been distributed for conference at the Supreme Court. And of course, that means that there's a possibility that the Supreme Court will decide on them. And if the court were to do so, that could change the law when it comes to qualified immunity. And so if you're a betting man, what do you think that means for for qualified immunity? Well, it's clear that the Supreme Court is looking very closely at this question, because not only are there several cases currently pending but a lot of these cases have been pending before the court for the, literally the entirety of the Supreme Court's term since October of last year. And the court keeps rescheduling them over and over and over again. I mean, it's always difficult to predict what the court's going to do. But I think that especially in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and the turmoil that has resulted from that, people have begun to clearly recognize the direct connection between the doctrine of qualified immunity and the culture of near zero accountability for law enforcement that produces shocking incidents like George Floyd's death. So I think that there's tremendous pressure on the court to take this issue up. It's clear that they're looking closely at it. And you know, I am cautiously optimistic that the justices are ready to confront this question and begin taking the first steps towards correcting this egregious mistake that the court has foisted upon all of us. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jay. And if our listeners, they have questions, how can they find you? You can check out our website, unlawfulshield.com. This is our website focused on abolishing qualified immunity that has updates on all the recent developments and a ton of great resources on the doctrine and its history. So I encourage people to check that out. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We'll cite our sources in our show notes, including that Unlawful Shield website that uh, Jay left with us. This has been another episode of Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Stay strong, America. Thank you.